Okay, Bioenergetic Helpline. What's the show? What's the name of the show? Bioenergetic Helpline Two with Jay Feldman, Mike Fave, and Harrison Ben. Uh, Jay, let's start with you. How are you, sir? Doing pretty well. And we're gonna get that story about Ecuador at some <laughs> point during this episode. I'm I'm positive. Just not right now. <laughs> Just not at this moment. But we'll get to that story, and so we'll we'll move on to Mike. How are you, sir? I'm doing pretty well. And, and then Harrison, you have you have a, a little mild story to tell us about an adventure in Mexico. Oh yes, we went to the uh, Teo. Oh, I can't say this. Teotihuacan, Teotihuacan pyramids. We went to the pyramids that are close to Mexico City, and um, yeah, it was it was nice to see um, some history, some culture, but. You couldn't. You you weren't allowed to to climb the pyramids like you could pre-COVID. I think the the COVID is worse at the top of the pyramids. <laughs> yeah, I mean everybody knows that Fauci has been saying that for a long time, mm-hmm. so it's pretty obvious. Right. <laughs> okay. Go, go ahead. The most sorry. important question though is how are you doing, Harrison? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm actually doing well. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah. we're all doing pretty well. What about you, Danny? Very good. A little bit tired today, but we're gonna power through it and then. Tomorrow we're talking with Ray, so that's always a very fun thing. So guys, call. Uh, we're line is open, and we'll be taking calls. We'll run. We'll do this for about an hour, and yeah. So we'll make. Uh, and then maybe if we don't get calls, which is unlikely, we can take questions from the chat. And until we get a call, what? Uh, what? So you guys have a podcast, obviously. What are you guys working on right now, or what was the last podcast? Who, Jay? Joking, yeah, yeah, me and Mike. Yeah. Well, I'm not talking about Harrison's podcast. No, <laughs> <laughs> True. Uh, yeah. Well, we've so we've got a, a good handful of episodes that are recorded and are not out yet. Um, been a little bit slow on the editing, but yeah, some good ones coming down the pike. Uh, talking about athletics and fitness, rel- you know, in through the bioenergetic lens and kind of where where that line is where those things meet and where they diverge. Uh, and then I, I think the, something that maybe is interesting for everybody here is the idea of um, like nutrient partitioning. And like, that was a big one that we talked about. I'd be interested to hear uh, Danny, you and Harrison's take on that. Uh, we were talking about how like people want to, people want to look at what happens in the body with calories and calories out as if everything has to be burned. And then even the researchers, if they're not looking at things in the context of being burned or not being burned, they only look at mo- like the three main depots, which would be adipose tissue, muscle tissue, or liver glycogen. And they don't consider like that calories have to be used by other systems in the body. And so we were talking, that's an episode. And, and just the metabolic rate being involved in that partitioning or the use of calories and that being the forgotten variable, do you think? Is that, that was the gist of it? Well, it, it was the idea that calorie that food, well, and then I guess Jay, you can talk about the idea of like energy versus substrate, but that food in general, ha- it it doesn't just either go to fat or get burned, and then even if it does get burned or it's stored, there's other places that it can be burned besides the muscle or the liver, or and it, there's other places that will be stored besides the muscle, the liver, and the fat tissue. And it doesn't have to be stored as glycogen or fat. It, it could actually be go to create new tissue, being used to create new tissue and whatnot. Or like, and I think we we mentioned like 
Um, like for example, the nervous system uses a large amount of, of energy. The central organs are using energy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that like it gets diverted into different areas. So there's more to the picture than just this idea of burning or not burning or burning or storing. Yeah, dude, that's, I, th- I feel like that's something you can't talk enough about, but about like uh, people thinking it's a, per- a person is either a fat burner or a sugar burner and that, and like there being one mode and, and it being not being more complicated than that. Yeah. And then uh, Jay, you had a good point in your study about like the difference between substrate and energy. Yeah, well, and even just going back to the partitioning, like when people are thinking calories in, calories out, and they're thinking about a surplus, let's say, the assumption is that that's going to body fat. And then sometimes the secondary assumption is like that it could go toward building muscle. But in reality, that's kind of what you're getting at, Mike, is there's a ton of other places for that substrate, for that fuel to go or for that energy to be used, whether it's building like bone or skin or regenerating any like any area, any tissue. Um, and yeah, just something that's not at all accounted for. Uh, yeah. And then, yeah, the, the other thing too is, again, just this assumption that the food coming in, which is the substrate, just equals energy and that there's nothing involved in that process that can derail it when in reality, that's like a, there's a not, not just a question mark there. It's just a ton of factors involved as far as what actually happens with that substrate and whether it becomes energy. And that's a huge part that's missed if you're just looking at the calories in number versus some arbitrary calories out number. Yeah, that's like the crux of the whole deal. That's literally one of the most important pieces to look at. Okay, I have some questions here. Okay, uh, you guys living in Latin America, do you enjoy any native vegetables that are available there? Harrison, what, what about you? Native vegetables. <laughs> um, well, what is your nutrition like in, uh, do we, are you okay with us saying where you live? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Mexico um, city. What, what is it like there? The same as it was in where, wherever I'm living. Like I'm trying to find the same staples that I guess would largely be considered staples of someone who follows a repeat paradigm or a bioenergetic paradigm of eating. Um, I would say that the, the freshness of certain fruits and the availability of fruits is, is different here than in Canada. So I'm definitely consuming more, more fruit juice, um, and, and fruits themselves than I was in Canada. Um, that's, that's, I would say that it's harder here to find, um, high quality food than it is to find high quality food in United States or Canada where I've lived previously. Um, it's certainly more, I would say it's not any cheaper to find like organic, um, or just high quality produce than it is, um, in United States or Canada. And it's certainly harder to find a lot of people, make the mistake of thinking that they're going to the farmer's market and that because it's in a farmer's market that it's, there's no pesticides or um, it's, it's grown in a certain way. And that's often not the case. And a lot of the times if you ask someone like, is it organic? They will just say, of course, yes, of course. <laughs> and then it'll have like the Driscoll sticker, like on the strawberry. <laughs> um, so I guess no, I, I haven't really, the, 
the availability of fresh produce, like fresh fruit and stuff is different than it is in, in Canada. Um, but I haven't really changed my, my nutrition too much. So just like a lot of corn oil and nuts and seeds <laughs> and whole grain bread, right? Trying to stick to the basics. Everything the body yeah. needs. <laughs> food pyramid, guys. Food pyramid. And Jay, what you about like you? acai bowls? You'll be in heaven. And Jay, and Jay, what about you? Uh, well, as far as vegetables go, I guess these aren't really vegetables like roots and and uh, squashes. But so there's two that we've found in Latin America that we didn't really have in the States. One is called camote, which is like a type of sweet potato, but it's like a purple sweet potato, but a little bit different from the purple ones in the States. Um, so we've been, you know, we were eating those in Costa Rica and then here in Ecuador too. And uh, another one, which is a similar name is chayote, which is a type of squash. And again, never sell those in the States, but we've had them both in Costa Rica and, and in Ecuador. Um, so you like both of those. And then otherwise, yeah, Produce like really varies location to location. And as Harrison said, a lot of times it's really like you have to be really careful. A lot of times they'll say it's organic or without chemicals and you have to kind of figure out who you can trust. And, you know, I'll, I'll have a few ways of testing it. I'll ask a few questions that I already know the answers to beforehand to know if they're going to tell the truth or not. Or I'll ask where certain things are from because there's no real weight on that question. And then I'll find out if they actually even know anything about it before trying to find out if it's organic or not. So there, we would find some places that we would trust um, and certain types of foods that either A, don't matter so much if they're organic and then B, that we know we could, like that we knew were organic or local. Per, per on, the or, on the organic versus no organic thing, I guess a good strategy would be to tell the person that you don't want organic food. Right, like, right. I don't, I don't want to pay extra for organic and then they'll be like, it's not organic and then you'll be like, <laughs> <laughs> perfect. <laughs> <laughs> you have to phrase it right. No, it's yeah. true. Like if you lead them into it, then they'll say yeah, whatever exactly. they think you want them to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's really funny. You know what? I just thought of something. We never really went over our mission statement for the show in the last episode, correct? And so I, I think that's what we bring to the table. You know, we're approaching problems from a specific point of view that I, in my estimation is really grounded in something. And so, Mike, <laughs> do you wanna, what, what, what is the bioenergetic, what does that mean to you? And how do, what does that mean, like approaching problems from that point of view? And how, do, how does it, I know this is like a 45 minute question, but what, what does maybe that differ from other modalities that you've explored in the past or something? Oh, I think that, uh, I think that taking Ray's hypothesis is probably the easiest way to explain the bioenergetic point of view, which is energy and structure interdependent at every level. So then like if you would make extensions from that, the idea would be to increase energy and thus increase structure. And then it's kind of like a feed forward reaction in and of itself. And you apply, basically it makes energy at the center point of, of like health and everything in general. And I think if you take that general idea and you apply it to systems overall, which I, I think that's where Pete looks at Bernanski's stuff, where it's looking at like ecological systems, not only like here on Earth, but like in the cosmos in general, and then bringing like zooming in and out based on different levels. If you take that general concept and apply it to things at all, it, it kind of it's like an almost an all encompassing type of uh, it's, it's not, I guess, a theory, but it's more like like a principle to look to view things through. Um, and then when you start getting into the mechanics of the cell and whatnot, and you start looking at things like it just gives you a context that actually makes sense. And it's not like kind of this singular, oh, 
oh, carbs are bad or fats are bad or plants are bad or animal products are bad or this or that. Like it puts things more into like a simplistic, but also um, like re- realistic point of view. Uh, and it, I think that it it constantly approves itself overall. Maybe that's my confirmation bias, but I think that race hypothesis, if you really look at that in the context of his work, gives like is an exact definition of what the bioenergetic point of view is looking at. And then Jay and Harrison, if you guys have any any other thoughts on that. On our mission statement or on the Ray P? Yeah, dude, dude, correct me if I'm wrong. We didn't talk about this the first episode. Like maybe maybe what drew you to Ray or what kept kept you thinking that it, like his hypothesis was something that was worth exploring? So um, my background is in working with athletes and I worked for a long time in semi-private training and nutrition for um, I'd say like elite athletes, like college or trying to be professional and some professional athletes in there. Um, and I had a lot of guinea pigs and I had followed a lot of, um, gurus in the past of people who were also training athletes. And basically it was a big, like you would see what worked and what, and what didn't really quickly. And I had like a pretty large sample size to see, um, who was progressing and who wasn't. And also we were pretty holistic in the fact that like we'd be asking them like, How's your sleep? How's your mood? We'd pay attention. We'd just basically be paying attention to how they are as human beings um, while they're training for their for their sport. And we would see. I tried a lot of different things with a lot of different people. Um, and I was introduced to Ray from by another performance coach who was working in professional hockey. And he, it was definitely a paradigm shift. Um, but I started to apply it to myself because my, my story with Ray or with, with what got me hooked on Ray was I had notoriously cold hands. And whenever I had an athlete walk in for a training session, I would pretty much, I would, I would do a, a, a table assessment with them and my hands would be touching their skin and I would have to like warm up my hands before I could touch them. Cause I know I would make them like jump <laughs> off the table. <laughs> Um, and at the time I was doing like intermittent, I think I was doing intermittent fasting. So no wonder why my my hands were super cold. And then, um, talking to this other sports sports coach and he, we, we were working with this, we were both coaches for the same athlete and this athlete was, was struggling in some ways. And so we were trying to figure out solutions to help this, this athlete with their performance and I was coming at it from one end and he was coming at it from another end. And he's like, go, go read a couple of these articles written by this guy. And then this guy was Ray Pete and I read the articles and I was like, this makes the most sense out of, um, a lot of things that I've read in the past, like nutrition, physiology, etc." And it's a lot to unpack. And basically I started to apply a lot of the, the basic, I guess, principles and then saw really, really good results. Like when I had breakfast, my hands were not cold. So like Eureka. Okay. Um, let's, let's go from there. And then it was really powerful to see, um, 
results applying applying these these principles to to my athletes. Like we had a lot of female athletes with uh, like the female athlete triad, which is like uh, menstrual cycle symptoms, bone loss, and what's I don't know what the other. It's like changes in appetite. I think Ch- I remember is it? correctly. Okay. Sure. And so like I we had it up really quick. We had I had athletes that like never had their period like ever they were 20 22 year old elite athletes college college level sports um and like olympic um like olympic team qualifying level athletes and they never got their period and like that's a problem for me (laughs) i mean that's a problem for 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 them because that's an indication of the the hormonal profile of the individual. And they were also struggling with like a lot of other correlated issues. It's not like they just didn't have their period and everything else was great in their life. Um, you can use the, the menstrual cycle as a, as a, like an assessment tool to see how, how you're doing. Right. Um, and so we implemented a lot of basic nutrition strategies and then she ended up getting her, her period after never having had one. And she's like 20, 23 years old. Um, and that's, that's pretty powerful. And they're like, they're looking at me like, what the fuck? Like I've seen, oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> we can, you can curse as much as you want on this show. <laughs> um, so they're, they're, they've seen like endocrinologists and it seems like the, 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 the solution for endocrinologists is like birth control for, I mean, um, what are they called? Gynecologists. Um, OBGYNs, yeah. Oh, yeah. They are, you have any sort of issue like acne, PCOS, um, menstrual irregularities. It's like, let's just throw birth control at them. (laughs) And then it's like they don't even consider like how that might affect. Let me interrupt you for for one second. I had a friend that had uh, Crohn's disease and the doctor prescribed her birth control for it. (laughs) Perfect. <laughs> like that's a, that's how like ridiculous that situation is. But continue, Harrison. Yeah, and I mean, like, definitely rambling a lot here. But to <laughs> applying applying repeat principles, basic basic principles with the athletes, we noticed really big physiological changes uh, for the better. Generally speaking. Um, it's really difficult though to to work with people on their nutrition and their performance because it's like it's a whole life coaching adventure because a lot of people are not like organized enough to even know like what's going on in their life like you'll have high performance athletes that are sleeping less than 4 hours a night or they're they're going out partying too much or they they wake up 20 minutes before a workout and they grab like fast food on the way to a, on the way to a workout. And like, there's so many like Mike and Jay, like you guys are talking about nutrient partitioning. Like I'm just trying to get this athlete, like not to eat McDonald's on the way to like workout. So it's, and, and really like that's where the, the progress is made is by trying to, like latch on to a couple foundational things that the athlete can do and then really do them consistently. So you can see what's working and what isn't. And then 
modify from there. But I think a lot of times people are going too much into, I don't want to call it advanced, but like really, really specific things, specific supplements, specific nutrients, specific concepts when they're just like totally disorganized in their whole life and they can't even, they can't even make a carrot salad. Like if you can't make a carrot salad, like I don't know what to tell you. Like, <laughs> like it's, it's going to be a struggle for you. You gotta, you gotta do things in your life to try to organize yourself a little bit better to, to find the time to actually take a step back and address your, your physiology. Hey Danny, before you continue, your yeah. camera dropped a little bit. Oh wow, really? Uh, okay, uh, noted. It's is it still Ben? It I don't, it's like I'm looking. We're looking at your computer screens a little bit. It looks like it's behind the your laptops. I see Danny's face. Really? He looks great. Oh, you guys have just that's that's the how the that's how the picture. Oh, okay, okay, <laughs> okay. Maybe it's just me. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, what I was going to say is just to comment on Harrison, sometimes a person will be in disarray or whatever, but that one thing like a uh, calcium or sugar or T3 or something will push the, like push them in a direction that they, they were like, it was impossible for them to get organized otherwise. And so that's why, yeah. like you said, it's like always looking for the, the path of is it the least resistance. Is that like the easiest thing to do for the biggest, like bang for the buck, you know? And so I'm like always searching for that, like what a what a person will incorporate that could possibly have the biggest um, effect. Like as we all know, sometimes people want to do certain things and don't want to do other things, even if those other yep. things might be possibly the exact thing that they need, you know. And so the speaking of, okay, so here's another question: Is aspirin something that should be implemented before trying thyroid or after TSH of nine, cholesterol elevated slightly out of range? Also, what other should, uh, what order should youth hormones be implemented? Did you guys? So we'll, can you, we'll start can with you Jay. Hear my music. Let's start with Jay. <laughs> guys, also, this is a, this is a call in show. So if you guys want to call in, that'd be just fantastic. But go ahead, Jay. <laughs> yeah. So with, with the TSH of nine, I don't think aspirin is going to resolve that. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily just jump to thyroid if it's between those two options. I would go with you know, a thyroid supplement, but there's probably a lot of other things that I would be considering prior with, with the TSH that high that could be, you know, involved as far as diet goes, eating consistently, having enough carbohydrates, all of that. But assuming those things are in place, I would definitely be looking to thyroid prior to aspirin. Uh, and then the second part yeah, of the, the question second is, part is uh, what, uh, also what order should youth hormones be implemented? Uh, I mean, I, you go, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't normally like have a necessarily an order. I mean, it, it would all kind of depend on the presentation and why they're being used. You know, I wouldn't always use progesterone before pregnenolone or something like that. It would depend, you know, it'd be, I would only be using them if there was a particular reason for it. And the reason would dictate for me what, which one I would use. Okay. Well, here's a question. If you guys recall Ray, like being skeptical about the production of pregnenolone and it being very difficult to make, do you guys have, when you're talking to people, do you have good experiences with pregnenolone for them or yourselves? I do. I get a good response from like an oral pregnenolone, but I haven't had good responses from the topical pregnenolone. Um, made me feel kind of off and i don't know if it was like the other additives that were in the formula that i used um 
<laughs> Very but covert, Harrison. <laughs> you do not. This, this band just showed up and decided to play. I don't. Outside my I think. Window. I think you're good. You don't hear, I don't hear anything. Okay, that's yeah. great. Yeah. No, me neither. Yeah, I can't hear it. <laughs> but yeah, the other. So I've had good response with oral pregnenolone. I've also actually, I've, I've. So the pure bulk DHEA, which I know is something that you you use, you've yeah. used, Danny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mix it with the progesterone. So I've actually I've taken like 10 milligrams of that orally and I've gotten like a pretty androgenic response from it. And I tried mixing it in vitamin E before. Um, but I think I think the additives that were in that vitamin E solution I was using, like I didn't I never responded well to that. Where I, if I think I use a different vitamin E this time, I would, I would be better because I've responded better to these other vitamin E's. But I've had good responses from them um, from pregnenolone and DHEA orally. Um, topically, I. This, I think the solutions were a problem. As far as I just want to make comment on the previous question, I think that youth hormones, aspirin and thyroid, if your diet and all that stuff isn't like foundationally correct, those are kind of like a little bit down the line interventions. When I've when I've worked when I work with somebody, I will those are like a little bit later. First I want to try and see what I can fix with the diet. Like where what are you eating on a regular basis? Are you eating enough? How are your macros? How are your micros? And like kind of hit those basics first. And then how's your sleep? How's your mood, et cetera, et cetera. What's your light exposure? All those types of things. And then start to like use those things. A lot of times what I found with people is if I correct the foundation first, then I don't even have to necessarily go to using the youth steroids because their hormonal profile will improve. Thyroid and aspirin are kind of like I kind of incorporate those or include those as more of like a core stack. But the other hormones, depending on the situation and person, I think are a little bit like further options that people have available, although progesterone in women has been something that I've seen have like quite beneficial effects. Um, and guys have seen hit or miss a little bit. Depends on the guy. Some guys respond well and some don't. I'm one that doesn't like progesterone very much. Okay. Yeah. On the, I, I would just echo um, a couple things that the guy said. I think in general, what I've learned from taking a lot of supplements or trying a lot of different supplements and um, also working with people who have tried a lot of, a lot of supplements. They're really, unfortunately there's a, there's an art to it. Like, Oh, we got a call to find Her hold, hold that um, thought. Hold that thought. Sure. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Caller, you are on, on the air. What is your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, uh, my name is Mohammed, calling from Texas. Cool, Rob. Oh, right on. Th thank you for calling. What's your, what is your question? Yeah, so I had a question around, um, just because you guys were talking about, like, hormonal imbalance and whatnot, um, for, like, I guess the term is man boobs. <laughs> um, like, what do you guys recommend? You know, I've been taking thyroid, started supplementing DHEA, staying away from PUFAs as much as I can. Uh, but what else do you guys recommend? or kind of like that higher level of estrogen in men that causes the enlargement of the chest. Muhammad, you are a genius. Thank you so much for calling. We'll, we'll uh, tackle that question right now. Okay. Okay. Talk to, take care, brother. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Okay. Uh, Jay, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. So I, I think it was right on with like his, uh, his question there, just as far as estrogen being an issue. Uh, leading to gynecomastia. So, uh, one supplement, like again, as you know, as we kind of 
referenced earlier, assuming everything else is in check, sleep, light exposure, um, food, those kinds of things. Uh, one supplement that I would look to would be vitamin E as an effective anti-estrogen. Um, I would consider some of the androgenic youth hormones we were talking about, like a pregnenolone, DHEA, maybe using it topically too, locally. Uh, those would be some of probably the first things I would look at. And then uh, again, well, I guess a couple other things. One would be some resistance training and then time uh, with, you know, good diet and all of that, which should help support that shift from estrogenic profile toward a more androgenic one. Great stuff. Anybody else have Mike? I would, um, I would look to see if there's something that you're doing that's, that's like irritating your intestine or that's raising your, your estrogen, perhaps something in your diet. And I would remove those factors as well as incorporate some of the things that Jay mentioned. Um, like I'll give an example. So I am allergic to cow dairy, like tested allergy to it. I don't respond well to it. It really messes up my gut. Oh, did you use the and, PCR test to figure that out, Mike? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was an RT PCR and they actually had this swab. Well, well, we won't talk about where they swab, but, um, uh, essentially when I was, drinking a lot of cow dairy. I didn't tolerate it well. I tried a whole bunch of different varieties, different options. Um, and I actually developed mild gyno. And that was the only time, like I've never had gyno before. I've never, even when I was going through puberty, I never had issues with it. But when I was trying cow dairy, that wound up giving me some gyno. So when I stopped, I, I didn't stand the experiment for too long because I would like trial, you know, this for a couple of weeks or for a month. And then I would try different forms. And then eventually I just realized like I wasn't doing well with dairy and I wound up getting tested and I was like, had an actual allergy to, to, uh, to the casein. Uh, I actually do okay with whey. So when I stopped that, I actually lost the tissue that I had developed on my chest. I didn't develop very much. Um, and then I was also getting other symptoms from it too. Like it had expedited for me my hair loss and then I was also getting acne on my back from it. So I was very sensitive to it. I'm still extremely sensitive to it. Um, but what I did realize is that I can tolerate like goat dairy products pretty well. So I do well with goat whey. Goat cheese doesn't like really mess me up too much, but it's not perfect. And then I can tolerate goat butter pretty well. And then when I get out of working in the hospital, I may try some goat milk because the last time I tried it, I was trying it with honey. And then I realized that I wasn't tolerating the honey well. So I would, I would see if there's something in your diet. The things that I would look for first are things that contain opiate peptides. So like soy and wheat. And then if you're not tolerating dairy, for some people, like cow dairy can be an option that, that has opiate peptides that may be problematic in, that, in certain people. And if that is the case, then you can try to move to goat or sheep dairy. And then if that's still the case, you can move towards like a whey protein um, or like cheeses that are made more with the whey protein. Or uh, I don't think there's too many. There's a specific one I was thinking of, but I would stick towards... Um, I would stick towards like avoiding some of those foods, seeing how you do and moving towards a diet that was, that had some meat, that had some fruit juice, fruits, whole fruits. If you tolerate starches, I would stick with like white rice or potatoes or yams, uh, as being like the most digestible sources. And then I would have some seafood to get different minerals in there and whatnot. So like some of the B vitamins can be helpful with estrogen metabolism. Zinc can be helpful. Jay mentioned vitamin E, vitamins A, D, and K can be helpful, um, and then the last thing, there's one other thing I want to mention, but it just, it just lost it because I was <laughs> going on too flowing. much. <laughs> I, I have some points to add to this. Um, I have experience personally and with working with clients that I've had um, 
gyno issues. I think Mike's point of really dialing in to paying attention to how certain foods make you feel, um, like your actual gyno symptoms. Um, and there can be some foods that are, are spoken of favorably for, I guess in a repeat paradigm, for example, cow's milk oh. triggers. Am I, am I there? <laughs> Uh, yeah, here. continue call her call back when Harrison is finished talking. Keep, keep going, Harrison. So there will be foods that some people will say are good for something, but they may not be good for you. So you still have to listen to your body to tell you whether the food is working for you or not. So just because some, some, somebody says cow's milk is you want to be drinking a lot of cow's milk. You want to be knowing how cow's milk works for you and also knowing how different brands of products will, will also affect you differently. Um, so really dialing into not only the, the, the food that you're eating, but like the, I guess the brand of, of milk that you're, that you're consuming, not just the type. Um, additionally to that, like paying attention to cooking with certain spices. Like if you are using like a lot of ginger, like if I have ginger tea, like my nipples are going to swell up. I don't know how you guys nipples do with ginger tea. I'm not sure you have ginger tea, but like stuff, stuff like that, like paying attention to if you're using like turmeric or whatever spices you're using in, in your cooking, like know how each one is going to make you feel. If you remove uh, one of them and you have less, less swelling in your nipples, then you're, you're on the right track. So don't overlook, I guess they're not small things. Like these spices can be, really, really powerful and, and stimulating, um, in one direction or another. Additionally to that, um, I'd be careful with, with doing anything like DHEA related, um, just cause of how easy it can aromatize. Um, I found that with, with guys who have, um, estrogen issues, I find that they respond better to progesterone than they do to DHEA. Um, and in an anabolic direction, again, like take that with a grain of salt. You have to know how that works for you. Um, but the message is pay attention to DHEA. I would say it's safer to use progesterone. I would play around with the topical application of certain uh, anti-estrogenic products to the nipple region. So I would, um, I'm not sure if I can tell you to do anything, but what I have played around with in the past or may have some, maybe have some benefit is actually like nicotine patches on your nipples. Be really careful with the dose. Um, applying progesterone or vitamin E or the fat soluble vitamins to the nipples themselves. Um, caffeine is also pretty good. Um, the Solban product that, that Georgie has, the topical application of that um, has worked quite well. And yeah, I think that, I think that was it to summarize, like pay attention to everything that you're eating from spices to food additives, everything. You have to know how it affects you. Um, be careful with using DHEA and thyroid. I find that guys with gyno haven't responded too well to those two products and they've responded more favorably to progesterone. Um, specifically the Progest E, maybe it's the vitamin E and other things to look into, um, fun things might be some nicotine patches, caffeine, <laughs> <and> soul <band. laughs> 
Yeah. Okay, 310 number. Give us a call back. Uh, you called when Harrison was talking. The, that gyno is kind of like a TSH of nine. They're pretty f- far along in a pathology. Yeah. yeah, like that. Like yeah. that, That's not... So again, I'm not saying the spices can be irritating and inflammatory. Okay, let's take this. 310. Okay, 310. What is your name? Where are you calling from? And what is your question? Hello? Yes. Yeah, you're you're on air. What is your name? Where are you calling from? And what is your question? Hey guys, it's Spencer from LA. Spencer, how are you, sir? Hi. <laughs> good, good. I just had a question. Uh, normally in the bioenergetic space, like you, you know. Sorry, I'm getting accosted. Uh, hello. Um, yeah, you're still. <laughs> it's typical to talk about. It's typical to talk about high cholesterol, but I feel like there's not a lot of talk of the low cholesterol. And mm-hmm. I was wondering if you guys can go into that and kind of give your take on what's going on there and maybe some possible solutions. Awesome, brother. I'm going to kick you off the call and then we'll round table it. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Spencer. Okay. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye, brother. Okay. Okay. Mike, what do you think? So I've actually had problems where my cholesterol is too low. And I think I've talked about this before, but I was, so I had, I was working night shift in new jersey as a nurse and during the winter and then i like hated it and i decided to move to florida and so my night shift dose of thyroid was way higher than my like the dose that i needed when i moved to like sunny warm florida and i had also switched up my diet a little bit so i I had found persimmon and i had like a brief love affair with persimmon and i was eating it all the time it's quite uh like a fibrous fruit, especially because I was eating it dried. I wasn't eating it fresh. And so I was like killing it, like literally like a pound or two pounds of persimmon a day. I was like slamming persimmon. Um, (laughs) So I was doing that. And then I was trialing, playing around with the monounsaturated and saturated fat ratios of my diet. So I had moved away from saturated and I had moved more towards monounsaturated fats. So I was high fiber and high monounsaturated, low saturated. And it was just for, it was just trialing just to see. And then I was taking a higher dose of thyroid than I needed. And at this point, like I was moving, so I wasn't really checking my temps as much. And I was just like, I was still maintaining what I was doing because I was like, I'll be fine. And so I went for, a, I went to donate blood because I donate blood maybe once or twice a year. Um, and they like, they give you your cholesterol when it comes back. And my total cholesterol was under 100 <laughs> because my thyroid dose and my fiber content and my monounsaturated fat content in my diet was so high. Um, not to mention that like a lot of the juices actually have compounds that lower cholesterol, like the polyphenolic compounds. So it was literally like I was just like hitting myself from all angles and I was having um, a decent amount of lean protein and whatnot. So like basically everything you could do to manage your cholesterol and keep it lower from a dietary perspective, minus taking like supplements and stuff like that for cholesterol, I was doing. So higher fiber contents can lower cholesterol, particularly certain types of fiber like soluble fiber. So persimmon happened to be quite high in soluble fiber, and I was literally eating like 60 to 70 grams of fiber a day. (laughs) And then the thyroid will push whatever cholesterol I had into the cell. And then the monounsaturated fats actually change the output of liver into the bloodstream, or excuse me, change the output of cholesterol into the bloodstream from the liver. So they, they can also help to lower serum cholesterol to some extent. Um, and then the polyphenols that I had in like in all the persimmon, which are super rich in the plant compounds, but then also the juices, because I was still having orange juice, pineapple juice, grapefruit juice, all of those were lowering 
some of the lipogenic enzymes in my liver. I'm not going to lie, at sub 100 cholesterol, I felt like absolute garbage. Like my mood was bad and my libido was poor and my workout performance was crap. And I'm sure at this point that my, my whole androgenic profile had decreased significantly. So what did I do to bring this up? Well, I reversed those things. So I like lowered my fiber content. I limited the amount of persimmon I was eating in a day. And I adjusted my sat, my fats back to more saturated fats. And then I adjusted my thyroid dose appropriately to like a more acceptable approach. But for me, the biggest thing, the most helpful thing overall, I think, was making sure I get enough saturated fat in my diet. That was the one of the number. And it's not I don't know what it is. It's not my cholesterol. Ne I've never had like high cholesterol, but my cholesterol numbers came back into like for me, it was like the 150s, 160s. And then I, I feel way better and my androgenic profile felt better and everything just like improved from there. So I guess the action steps from there would be to monitor how much fiber you're taking in, particularly soluble fiber, adjust your fatty acids appropriately. Uh, the other thing I want to mention too is that the monounsaturated fats that I was using were heavy in beta-cystosterol um, and that was from macadamia oil. And the beta-cystosterol has like a competitive effect with cholesterol and can alter cholesterol metabolism. So it, it's important to make sure that, you know, if you are sensitive to those, which I eventually, I didn't find that out right away. I found that out down like later on because I was using a lot of macadamia nuts even here in Texas and I was getting a similar effect on my hormones. So being careful with the beta-cystosterol and some of the phytosterols is important as well for managing cholesterol. And they have been shown to have um, a, like lipid, blood lipid lowering effects. So I think that was the, those were, those are some of the, like the most important pieces in my experience. So, so in your case, it sounded like you were kind of accidentally self-sabotaged, but Jay, what about if somebody has like an infection, would that lead to a low cholesterol level? Uh, probably yeah, high. It, it, yeah. That's what I was going to say is that I would, I would expect him to actually be higher. In the but, HDL. No? but doesn't the but the infection doesn't that bind the like cholesterol is used to bind the lipopolysaccharide to some extent the the when the when the lipopolysaccharide is released into the bloodstream it re induces the release of IL6 and tumor necrosis factor alpha mm -hmm. and then that induces the liver to upregulate cholesterol production so it it's like it's supposed to be a feedback loop because then the cholesterol binds the endotoxin and then less endotoxin lowers the response. So there's probably going to be a curve of, of cholesterol, perhaps on like a chronic infection type state. But at the same time, people who have elevated gut endotoxin usually tend to present with high cholesterol levels. And I think that's I think it may, maybe gets like chronically upregulated because those cytokines directly increase lipid. Uh, production by the liver like it's like a direct mechanism i'm not saying that's not true but like almost everybody i talk to with chronic diarrhea has low levels of cholesterol and i've talked to several people that have taken an antibiotic and it bounced up almost immediately and so that that seems to be a really common presentation and, and those people seem to be the most um like you know how like like you said you had a low level of cholesterol and it affected your psyche it seems like they can't adapt like they're really kind of manic I'm not saying saying Spencer's is li like this, but they like they seem like they're they're especially they're dis disgruntled, yeah. yeah. And so that I've seen that over and over and over again. But I'm not saying that's well, how, how it presents every single time or anything. I think that that I think that that's I think that that's a different scenario though, 
Because if you were to have an infection like inside, so the infections in the gut aren't technically inside the body, right? Mm -hmm. There is still technically an external infection. So I think that does deplete energy because the, like, the liver has to constantly focus on managing what's coming from the gut or managing like the situation with the gut. But like with the metabolic syndrome type gut stuff where it's like you just have like an overall like the obese microbiome or the diabetic microbiome, like they have constant uh, LPS leaking into the bloodstream. Whereas in the digestive disorders, I think there's like other things going on. Like I think they get upregulations in the serotonin, serotonergic signaling. And then I think that the upregulation and serotonergic signaling is what alters what's going on mentally as well. On top of like their liver is constantly taxed from I mean, what they have from like the dysbiosis and whatnot. And I, mean, I don't know if it's th through endotoxin and those mechanisms. It could be like through through other other things. Like like for example, the bile acids being converted into secondary metabolites by an overgrowth in the small intestine, and then that triggering the serotonin receptors, something like that. So maybe like an acute situation versus chronic situation that's been going on for a long time or something. Yeah. So like an infection, like if you had like pneumonia or you had sepsis or you had like a bad skin infection where the bacteria was like, like getting into your bloodstream, that's the tumor necrosis factor IL-6. Um, and then the obesity and metabolic syndrome profile is also that. But I also think that the situation you're talking about is a slightly different circumstance. And so there it's, you'll see that the, uh, um, that different response. And perhaps part of that is maybe cholesterol is being diverted or like a lack of cholesterol production because the liver is being so heavily taxed, something like that. So okay. I think, I think that you're right, Danny. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, yeah, maybe just the endotoxin absorbing into the blood and the liver having to deal with that. Could that cause the liver just to make less cholesterol just anyways? Yeah, because all of, so the, the blood supply from the gut and the spleen both go to the liver. So like the portal hype, the portal circulation is spleen and gut. So if you're under any immune stress or under any gut stress, it automatically is taxing the liver. The liver is going to get the exposure first. Um, cause all, uh, basically all the blood supply and even from the colon. So you like, for example, in my own situation, the biggest issue I had was like, after I had my surgery, I had scar tissue, et cetera, et cetera. And I wound up getting gut issues in one particular area. It's like the scar tissue is kind of clamping down in that area and I think altering metabolism to some extent. So when food would reach that particular area in my colon, and I could tell just based on the transit time, locations, symptoms, et cetera, I would feel like blood sugar drops. And it's because I felt like a dysbiosis there was taxing, well, like it would, it would correlate. So I'd get that left lower quadrant pain, and then I would have like the blood sugar symptoms, and then I have like the tightness over my liver. And they like went hand in hand for a while. So I was thinking that the gut, the blood supply, whatever was going on there was then taxing my liver. And maybe send a nasty text to Jay at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jay has definitely seen me at like low points when my stuff has been messed up. Like Jay has seen all of the, he's seen the 50 shades of Mike. Not, well, oh, wow. Not like That's that. insane. <laughs> I can just confirm that the first time I met you, Mike, in person, you had a huge bag of persimmon. I did. And I offered you some and you didn't like them. Well, I didn't want to have a low cholesterol. Like <laughs> but just a little side note on cholesterol. I think um, adding more, if you're like real, if you're healthy and you maybe you're just eating in a way like that Mike was, that was just depleting your cholesterol, um, incorporating like more, more sugar and more saturated fat overall in your diet. And just anecdotally, I've seen that duck eggs are extremely high 
in cholesterol um, compared to chicken eggs. So maybe if you, maybe it's just because they're larger, but I think, I, I think like per, per weight, they probably carry more cholesterol. And maybe if you're eating eggs anyway, maybe look to switch to duck eggs to. I had some duck eggs in Thailand and they, they accidentally sent them to me and I thought they were so gross. <laughs> like I, they, yeah. they, they have some mouth mouth feel that I was, it was, was a super big turnoff, but, but if they I, I don't, do they contain proportionally more polyunsaturated fat? Maybe they're a way bigger source. Or they do. Okay. They do have more poofa. I think the duck overall has, but it depends on the feed. Yeah. It depends on the feed. I right. think buy some, buy some ducks and feed them good things. And then, so very very soon but, if, but go ahead if you're in thailand i think the cure for everything is century <laughs> eggs you just have to eat century eggs all day long are those like the black the black ones i think i saw those Those are like market. the fermented like disgusting <laughs> black eggs and then there's like the eggs with like the fetuses in them like the form ducks and whatnot Ugh. okay we're about uh five minutes over seven at least uh central time here and so we'll go for another 50 minutes or so um so again lines are open please call in there's a call-in show uh okay what ages are danny jay mike and harrison i am 36 years old jay i am what 27 uh, I did want to just while I while I have the mic for a yeah. second. Don't don't <laughs> go into e- Ecuador. In <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> we skipped Jay twice. Uh, just thought, you guys know. Oh, oh, you know what? We have a call. <laughs> We're going to have to hold that. Oh, there it goes. <laughs> we'll finish go up with it. it. Okay. Uh, okay, caller, you are on the air. What is your name and where are you calling from? Caller, you are on the air. Uh, what is your name and where are you calling from? Oh, this is uh, Ben from Spokane. Hey, Ben, what's your question? Oh, oh uh, I started doing keto in uh, November of 2019, and by February 2020, I was waking up after about uh, four hours every night, and uh, then that, but then like that ever since. I stopped keto in about uh, six months later, and have been gradually uh, reintroducing carbs, but nothing has seemed to really affect that. Just a quick question. Have you measured your temperature and pulse upon waking and then again in the afternoon? Uh, I used to wake up uh, very suddenly, but I kind of come into consciousness over about like 15 minutes. So I'm not quite sure how accurate it would be. And then is your heart racing when you're waking up as well? Uh, Yeah, racing and very weak pulse. Mm -hmm. And then do you have a maybe it's coincides with a nightmare or something like that? No. Okay. 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 Uh, Ben, was that your name? Yep. Okay, Ben, thank you so much for calling. We sincerely appreciate it. We'll riff on your question. All right. Okay, take care, bud. The first thing that comes to mind for me is sodium. Um, And you might need, I would definitely consider um, like exploring maybe what your upper limit is of sodium that you can have at, at one time and having that before bed and then having um, like something sugary and really, really salty, um, beside your bed so that if you do wake up, you just sip on that like right away. Um, and yeah, most people like I, I haven't really, it's hard to get enough sodium, especially if you've done like keto for a while or you're done any sort of athletics, I would look to increasing the sodium and potentially using, um, like a sodium bicarbonate supplement as well. 
I've referenced this like a thousand times, but Broda Barnes has a book called uh, hypo, um, <laughs> uh, uh, Hypoglycemia. It's not your mind, it's your liver. And in that book, he talks about the thyroid's relationship with the liver and helps it store glycogen. And so if a person is running out of sugar in the middle of the night, they're, tend to, they're going to tend to wake up at 3 or 4 a.m., sometimes with a racing heart rate. And so that was something I experienced on many different diets. And it, it seems like uh, I can get in a rhythm of uh, vitamin D and thyroid seem to be the two absolute most important things for, for me resisting that those wake-ups in the middle of the night. And so maybe Ben had a that was the straw that broke the camel's back or something and kind of revealed the low liver function and started having him wake up. But um, yeah, getting checking, maybe getting some lab tests, the total cholesterol or the vitamin D and kind of going from there and then checking the pulse and temperature in the morning and checking again in the afternoon. And then the simplest thing being maybe having a high fat, uh, high calcium, high sugar snack, like ice cream or something with, without any additives before bed. And if he could get away with that, that might be the simplest solution. But what do you, uh, Mike and Jay, what do you guys think? You go, Jay. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think the snack before bed's the easy solution, right? But if, so I know Ben said that he's been gradually increasing carbs and maybe just hasn't hit that sweet spot yet. Uh, especially if you're coming from keto, I mean, you get used to so low carb that someone might think 100, 150 grams is is like back to normal amount of carbs. Um, so there might be room to go there. Another thing that I found is a lot of times when people are having that wake up in the middle of the night, they know that this is a glycogen issue or they're running through their stores too quickly. So they focus on that big snack at the end of the day or having a bigger dinner. And sometimes I think that backfires a little bit, A, because then you're digesting too much. And that can be a little stressful. Uh, but the other thing, too, is when we concentrate too much of our like, calories or food toward the end of the day, I think that can throw things off circadian rhythm-wise as well. So I recommend making sure that, A, someone's eating enough, and then, B, making sure that it's spread out pretty, like, in a more balanced way, like getting a really solid breakfast and maybe a decent lunch, too, as opposed to concentrating too much food at the end of the day, but still making sure to get something like a a snack with carbs and fat and salt before bed. And then, I mean, if that's still not helping, maybe looking at some things to help support liver function, increase glycogen storage, uh, maybe something like taurine. But a lot of times I don't think that's necessary. Yeah. Anything to Are add, you go, Danny? No, no, I was done. I finished. Oh, I, I would say, um, I would say the, there's a couple things that have trashed my sleep in my life, um, missing meals during the day, not having enough carbs, not having enough fat, and then like not having enough of all the minerals or eating on a regular basis throughout the day. So especially coming, cause we did the whole, well, I never did keto appropriately cause I did keto with like 300 grams of protein. <laughs> so I was like, I was just running through gluconeogenesis. But the thing that, uh, the thing that I think would help the most is making sure that you're having regular meals during the day making sure you're getting adequate calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. So getting all, repleting all the miner, minerals essentially. Um, and then I would say that, like, I don't know, depending on what your size is, I would say for me, I'm, for references, I'm like 6'2", 100, 185, 190 pounds. For me, I was, and Danny, Jay, and I, and we're talking about this before, right before Harrison jumped on and right before he started, but going too low, going too low fat. So like if you're switching over into eating more carbs, and you are, you still need to have fat. So when I initially went into repeat, 
like got into the Ray Pete sphere and I'm Randall cycle, yada, yada, all that stuff. I went like really low fat. And when I went really low fat, like it trashed my sleep, it trashed my libido. I felt like I was having adrenaline responses all the time. My blood sugar was crashing. I couldn't maintain stable. So like couldn't maintain like a stable blood sugar. I had to eat like every two hours. So what I recommend is with your meals and even before bed and whatnot, making sure that you're having carbs, proteins, and fat all together and making sure that you're getting enough fat during the day. And I usually recommend people like between maybe, well, I work with women too, but if you're a guy, I'd probably recommend between 15 and 30 grams of fat per meal, um, have like three or four meals per day. And then for protein, usually recommend like 0.6 to 0.8 grams per pound. And if you want to build muscle, maybe go up to one gram per pound and then at least twice as much carbs as protein. So for me, my protein could be like 150 grams a day. So I'm going to have at least 300 grams of carbs. And then for fat, I'll have like 100 grams or more of fat in a day. And that that will maintain, like, then I can sleep well. My libido is pretty good. A lot of times I might even eat more fat than that. And I, like, overall, just better for me as long as my digestion can handle it. I don't have a gallbladder, so I'm a little sensitive. But <laughs> um, overall, yeah, that's that would be my recommendations. Making sure you're covering all of your macros and whatnot first. And then making sure you're covering your micros, particularly minerals. And I think Harrison has like an excellent point there because the low carb, the low carb diets do actually deplete a ton of minerals, sodium, magnesium, um, and potassium as potassium as well because they don't. It's hard to get a lot of potassium on a low carb diet unless you intelligently sort it out with your vegetable intake. So yeah, I would I really rec. You basically are probably gonna have to go through a period of time of repletion. Like I don't know about Harrison and and Danny, but for Jay and I when we came off low carb and intermittent fasting all that stuff there was like months where we were ravenous just like eating everything just to like i guess to replete ourselves or whatnot just like starving and i've had people even clients now like i have one client in particular i'm sure he may be listening but like he was on six thousand calories for like like a month or two months of just meat and milk and eggs and olive oil and butter and whatever else juice just to get himself like to recover from where he was and he like completely changed after that but there was definitely a recovery period it doesn't it doesn't happen like that like it it takes consistency with your meals and macros and micros etc i think the the ravenous period um i i think really upping the sodium as much as you can can really um help avoid just consuming calories um because the sodium can lower the adrenaline quite a bit um, so I, I would just really explore how much sodium you can take um, throughout the day, not just at night. And then also paying attention to like what that last meal is. Like if it's if it's like a meat protein and a starch, like a potato or something like that, like you're you're not really going to have that steady um, blood sugar as you would having some some fruit juice or some fructose involved with that. So paying attention to foods. Um, that will lower blood sugar more than others, like eggs or chocolate that have leucine in it. So paying attention to that that type of thing too. Okay, let's take this last caller here. Okay, <clears throat> okay caller, you are on the air, and where are you calling from, and what is your question? Hey, Danny, it's uh, Ethan, and I'm calling from San Diego. Ethan, how are you, sir? What's your question? <laughs> good, good. Um, well, I just thought this would be an interesting question to propose to the group because you guys all seem to work with clients. Um, what are maybe like the foundations that you're looking at when a client first comes to you? Um, like, is it the calcium to phosphorus ratio? Is it um, like the total calories? 
And then my second question would be for someone who has like a sensitive intestine and has trouble with like a lot of different foods, including dairy, how would like, what are some maybe meal ideas or snacks that they could eat throughout the day to keep the caloric intake up? Ethan, you're a genius. Thank you so much for calling. All right. Thanks, okay. Danny. Talk to you soon, yeah. brother. Bye. Okay. A grab bag. Who wants to start? <laughs> I'll <laughs> I'll take it, I guess, if no one wants to take it. Go, go ahead, Mike. Start us off. So the first, the first question is, what are the things you look at with clients? And then the second one was snacks for an irritated intestine or sensitive intestine, right? Yeah. So with clients, um, at least for me, I don't want to speak for all of you guys because I think everyone has their own way, but I'm looking, I think about things in layers because I'm, if I'm going to approach something with people, I'm going to approach them in layers. Cause I can't just like, I can't just throw a whole plan at somebody and tell them here, do it because like, there's a lot more that goes into making lifestyle changes for people. But when I'm looking at diet stuff, look at calories, macros, micros, and then ratios of micros. And then the other thing I always do with people is I have them plug their diets into chronometer so I can see what they're doing on a daily basis. And then when I have my call with them, I will recreate their diet, hitting the calories, macros, micros, and ratios with them, mirroring some of the components of what their original diet was so that when they have to change over to the, like, to the new paradigm, it's similar to what they were already doing. So the change isn't that drastic. And then I'll start to like, like whittle things down. So it's like, okay, we're going to focus on getting enough protein in the day. Like that's what you need to do now. And then once that becomes like a normal habit, then it's like, okay, we're going to focus on enough carbs, then enough fat. Then we're going to ha- add in some of these extra foods. So you can reach your micros. And then it's like, then we'll add in supplements one at a time. Like, so if things are progress over time, it's not just like, a, you I, you can write somebody something to do. But in my experience, most times if somebody's searching out for coaching, it like just telling them what to do doesn't solve the problem. Uh, it really needs to be like a walkthrough process of somebody like helping somebody incorporate it into their life. Um, that's my experience with that. So I'll leave you guys with that. And I guess we'll answer the second question after I do something similar to Mike. Um, every client that I work with, um, at least for the onboarding phase, um, they have to, they, they should take a photo of everything that they put in their mouth um, and on their body. Like I have them, take photos of like deodorant and shampoos and everything that goes in or on your body. I have them take a photo of, and we try to do like three days is great, but it's best if they can do a week. And then, um, I'm doing the same thing that Mike's doing with that. Um, just looking at all the macro micronutrient ratios. Um, but usually they're missing something like big picture. Like you'll, the, the great thing about photos is you get a timestamp. So, They'll have a photo at 7 a.m. and then the next photo will come at 4 p.m. And then you're like, you're missing a meal here. So um, did you not take a photo or did you miss the meal? And then you try to basically piece things together, covering all the basics. But I think the theme is the client or the, the person has to know what they're doing. And you also have to know what they're doing so you can make a an intervention and then evaluate the success of that intervention or not. Chronometer is, is great. I find taking a photo is easier for people to do and I get the timestamps and I can, I can work with that. And Jay. Cool. Um, yeah, so I, 
I have people track on chronometer. I think that there's obviously a lot of information to gather there. Looking at the same things you guys mentioned, right? Looking at macronutrients, total calorie intake, micronutrients. Um, and then another, another huge part, which I'm sure you guys do in whatever capacity is getting a real in-depth understanding of like what someone is experiencing symptom wise. A lot of times people aren't even aware of what is a symptom or what is suboptimal as far as sleep goes or like different skin issues or hormonal, you know, low sex drive, th things that people don't necessarily recognize as symptoms of underlying dysfunction, but having a real comprehensive kind of walkthrough of that, I think combined with chronometer combined with any labs, uh, or blood work is like allows, you know, at least for me in the way that I work with people allows me to kind of put a, a picture together that, uh, yeah, allows me to see like where someone's at and what I think would be like, what are the best steps to, uh, get someone feeling better? Yeah, you guys do a lot more work than I do. <laughs> I, think, I think my approach is always just to talk to a person and have like a try to have a normal conversation with them, and then I feel like they always have some reason they're they're wanting to talk, and so exploring that and seeing what they've tried, what they haven't tried, uh, like maybe bringing things up, like Jay said, to their attention that they, maybe they don't even know are symptoms, like asking them. All those little questions, like if, they're, if they get shaky or something, if they don't eat for a while, if they're waking up in the middle of the night, um, their mood, uh, their pulse and temperature and things like that, just like bringing those things to the surface. And, and when when they talk about them, I think it makes them more aware of them, you know? Um, oh, Mike Mike is gone. <laughs> He's back now. Oh, He's back. back. <laughs> and, then, um, and then usually, I think 99% of the time, somebody has an idea of what they want to do, I feel like, when they're talking to me. And so I kind of like support them with whatever they want to do. Obviously, I would give my two cents if I thought it was harmful or something. But And so they'll either want to like go down the dietary rabbit hole or they'll want to try thyroid or an antibiotic or something. And I'll just support that person and their endeavor. Um, and and then, okay, so the next thing we need to talk about is milk milk stuff. And so the people that have been successful with overcoming milk allergy in general that I've seen usually use an antibiotic or flowers with sulfur or something, or they're co constantly eat eating irritating foods. And so what is your guys' experience? I don't try to like force the milk, um, in any way, shape or form. Like I try to come at it from a roundabout way. Like let's, let's see what foods work for you. Make sure that we're, we're covering a lot of our bases with the foods that do work then potentially, um, like to keep the calcium up, we might do like an eggshell powder or something like that. Um, cause I find it's hard to do the calcium without, without the milk, um, exploring the different types of milk. Um, like Mike mentioned before, goat, sheep, cow, whatever. Um, once you clean up a lot of the like underlying inflammation, um, by making other changes to the diet, we find that the milk can slide right in without having too much of a, of a problem. Um, but strategies of introducing milk can be to have smaller servings with, um, like a large amount of food that you are really comfortable with. Um, so not just having milk on an empty stomach, but having something else in there can be, can be helpful. The type of milk and just addressing it in a roundabout way. Like don't try to force the milk. You can, you can probably work on other things, um, that will help the milk fit into, uh, into place easier, um, after a couple weeks. Can I add one other, um, one other thing to my uh, answer? 
is uh, sometimes a person will react to raw milk, will react to pasteurized milk, and won't react to UHT milk. Yes. And so those would be some of the easiest things to, to try immediately. And a lot of people don't want to ever try UHT milk <laughs> like the and but I think sometimes that can be like a fly under the radar as a way to drink and a, a way to drink milk with with pretty easily. And also, like Harrison said, I'm not under the impression that everybody needs to drink milk. So if Parmigiano Reggiano or eggshells yeah. worked, I would also think that was fine. I'm just saying if a person had a milk allergy and they wanted to try to figure it out, those would be some of the things to try. Okay, go go ahead, Jay. I, I think, sorry, I think being being able to tolerate milk and feeling good on milk is so helpful for people. So like if they can get to the milk stage, like milk is, um, I find it to be super powerful, especially for like young athletes that need calories. Um, it's milk is, it's great if you can do it. And I think there's things that you can do to, to get there for sure. Except for if you're Mike Faith. <laughs> Except if you're a Mike Fave and your body was uh, mutilated by the medical system yeah. <laughs> multiple yeah, times, pretty much. <laughs> your organs, pretty much. Okay, was that d- Jay? Did you have something? Well, wasn't wasn't the Question the caller snacks. asking? Questions about snacks. Yeah, but weren't they asking for snacks if you can't have milk or if you like you can't have dairy and someone has a sensitive intestine? They, they probably need to get calories. They, they probably did say that. True, they did ask that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so. Yeah, I would. I mean, I like as far as something super basic and just not like, like something that's least likely to irritate the intestines. I mean, like a fruit juice sort of, um, yeah, fruit juice based would be, uh, I don't know, like simple uh, carbs. Of course, it's not like a very substantial snack, but normally that someone in that state also could lean more toward. Uh, more toward meat or like seafood and just have smaller, more substantial meals as opposed to trying to do a snack so much. Um, And, you know, again, someone who's more sensitive might struggle more with like more fibrous fruits. Maybe, you know, doing a couple pounds of persimmon isn't the best idea, but um, (laughs) some fresh fruit might be fine, you know, so things like that, smoothies and whatnot would, uh, would all be good snacks. Um, Yeah. Maybe like leaning more into roots and tubers as well would be an option who has a tuber as a snack <laughs> first of yep. all no, we pronounce snacks yeah jay explain yourself Chicago. nobody would ever have a tuber as a snack like i'm, just gonna <laughs> I'm thinking like potato. potato chips like cooked in coconut oil <laughs> yeah they have those no um, you just walk around with the tuber right <laughs> just skin tuber just eating it <laughs> the first snack i would try to see what uh cheeses work for you um sometimes the parmesan Not- really works and like maybe uh, like a, a cheese that works for you and a high quality beef jerky and uh, like some eggshell powder. Okay. Yeah. Should we take this one? Okay. If the answer is this call, keep them relatively short because we got to get out of here. Okay. This last call. Okay. Caller, you are on the air. What is your name? Where are you calling from? Uh, like a, a cheese that works for you and a high quality. Oh, oh caller, you're going to have to turn off the, the, the stream for a second. Oh, sorry. It's Can okay. you guys hear me? Yeah, you're all good. What, what is your name? Where are you calling from? And where's, uh, what is your question? Awesome. Uh, my name is Katya. I'm calling from Tennessee. And I have a pretty loaded question. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's like kind of specific of a kind of like a case um, question. So hopefully, anyway, I'll just get into it. So I'm wondering if you have any suggestions for someone with debilitating depression to give some contact. This person has been 
um, on psychiatric drugs for a couple of years, like since he was 13 until now he's 25, um, just on and off. And uh, he experienced a lot of opiate use, which as a result, he started doing Suboxone treatment, uh, which is, you know, a partial agonist for opioids. He's completely off them now and began taking Prozac because nothing seems to help with the depression. But even on this Prozac, it's falling back into a deep depressive state. Um, I understand this is a handful, but want to give some sort of clinical background. And if you had any suggestions or thoughts on how to cure something like debilitating depression, because everything I read, it's just, you know, I have no idea. (laughs) Thanks for your call, Katya. We'll, We'll round table it right now. Awesome. Thanks. Okay. Thank you so much for calling. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Okay. One, this isn't medical advice. So that should be really, really important. Um, who wants to, I have thoughts about depression, but who does anybody want to give this a go? Well, I have pretty direct thoughts around the opiate use and then also the SSRIs because I know them pretty directly because I work with all of these drugs on a regular basis. Um, the first thing I would look at for somebody like this is that, well, they're probably going to be hypogonadal. And if you haven't looked at what's going on with their androgens, because opiates directly lower dopamine, and then they also directly lower androgens. So like a a known side effect of opiates is even, even like uh, endogenous food opiates, like the exorphins that you can find in wheat, soy, dairy, and, 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 I don't know about the rubiscolins and spinach. That's another type of opiate, but the they can lower uh, dopamine signaling and then they can lower the entire gonadal axis. So I would go and look and see what's going on with his hormones because just having low testosterone in general or having low androgenic signaling in general can lead to a depressive state, particularly in a male in his twenties, and particularly if he was using those drugs throughout his entire like his entire puberty. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that coming off. SSRI drugs is extremely difficult for some people because the the drugs have to be tapered to a large extent. And so it does take some time. Um, and they do have negative effects on androgenic signaling as well. So I would, this is a case that I would really look what's going on Clint, like with lab, with lab testing specifically, I would really do some lab testing to see where he's at. Um, just knowing the effects of the SSRIs on thyroid on 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 um, androgenic signaling and knowing the effects of opiates on the the entire gonadal axis. I actually there's a couple guys I know in Florida who were had like gotten involved in heroin and then wound up coming clean and whatnot. And then they they went to their doctors because they weren't feeling right and that they were hypogonadal and the doctor put them straight on TRT instead of recognizing that they had just come off like off of being like off of opiates for years. So I think those would be the first places I would look. And then obviously the, like the not enough context there, but is the rest of his foundation in place? Is he eating on a regular basis? Is he, is he, has he tried doing some types of exercise? Has he been getting light exposure? Um, Does he have like in these situations, does he have some regularity as far as like a schedule in his life to some extent so that he can kind of get on track with things um, does, is there like a purpose involved? Is he reaching towards some type of goals? Like all of these things I think are extremely helpful coming from those, that position. And then there's obviously there's a ton of like supplements that you can try to use to, to modulate the different receptor function in, inside the brain after playing around with those medications. But I haven't, I haven't explored those pathways, um, 
and I haven't spent a lot of time with like people suffering like what's it post SSRI uh, dysfunction or post SSRI syndrome, things like that. And then also the opiates as well. So it's a rough place. It's going to take some time for the body to, to adjust to that. Cause you literally have serotonergic and opiate signaling over extended periods of time. That it's, that's a rough spot. It's a really rough spot. I would totally concur with the getting some basic lab tests. So a vitamin D, a TSH, total cholesterol, prolactin, parathyroid hormone, and like approaching the situation, maybe, I mean, as complex as that situation is, approaching it is a, the same manner, almost approaching any problem. Like if the, if the vitamin D is low, correcting that can have a profound effect on mood. And then if the person is hypothyroid, correcting that, uh, what is it? SSRI, so-called SSRI resistant depression. And then they'll, They'll add in T3 to the SSRI resistant depression and it will fix fix it, you know? And so, uh, again, like Mike said, having a foundation there to build on and, and doing easy things before doing really technical things because, um, because, again, that's a really difficult problem and you'd probably want to cover the basis before getting into, like, uh, buying biosporin from Russia or something and, like, something yeah. really overly technical. Well, the technical things are also often are also in line with that allopathic approach. So a lot of times I don't like I haven't seen super benefits from loading somebody on like BCAAs, tyrosine, phenylalanine. And then with and I'm not saying that these things don't work, but I haven't seen them to be like cures for this stuff. And then throwing in like L-DOPA and mucuna prurians like you can do things like that. But number one, you have to be careful with them. And then number two is like the effects don't seem to be persistent, like especially if the foundation isn't in place. So I agree with you, Danny. I think the foundation always has to always has to be there first. And then you can get more. You kind of like get more precise as you go down. It, it, and one other thing, uh, if, if that person is low energy and low motivation, doing those little things might increase their motivation because it, it, nobody like only a person can help themselves. Like if you're an outsider helping somebody else, you can only do so much like, and so if they're, if they're non-committal to anything, you know, uh, and I, I know a lot of people like that, you know, so just trying to do something to move the situation in a, in a good direction. And maybe that will start some, some kind of, um, snowball effect that they'll, they'll be mo more motivated to take care of themselves because I mean, as an, taking some care of somebody else that is not motivated to do anything is extremely difficult. Okay, so uh, Harrison and Jay, any thoughts before we wrap things up? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree <laughs> with both you guys. <laughs> I, I think Danny made a good point, right? Treating it like many other physiological issues. And you see that, right? When you see like the physiology of what's going on in depression, you see the same low ATP, mitochondrial dysfunction, like the same underlying drivers. Of course, coming back to what we discussed earlier, the bioenergetics, race hypothesis like it all applies directly there too so sometimes it could be something as simple as t3 right and replacing thyroid hormone uh yeah so i would be keeping the focus on the big picture of course the extremely difficult part here being the fact that the presentation of this physiology makes it very tough to rectify it right it's really tough to make changes for like for someone who's in the situation so, you know, taking that small step-by-step -step approach, but because this is a situation where it's so relatively severe and, and so stuck in that feedback loop, it might be a situation where I would look to some of the 
band-aids first right to something like thyroid hormone or maybe antibiotics if there's other things to suggest that that would be necessary or supportive um you know i might look to some of those things a little bit sooner rather than later because it'll help kind of break that cycle uh, maybe b vitamins as well just some things that would come to mind i i want to echo i think like the the band-aids first approach can be really good with people that are further down in the helplessness stage because you need to do something that's extremely easy. That's going to, I guess for lack of a better way to describe it, like perk them up a little bit so that they can eventually take the next step on their own. And then getting the, getting as much information as you can about the picture in terms of labs and like, what the person is eating, but you, you probably don't want to ask a depressed person to log their stuff on chronometer. Like they don't, <laughs> like they're, they're not going to do that. So, but like knowing as much as you can about the situation with all the labs, and then identifying like what might be the most appropriate band aid to give or to to I, I don't know recommend or give is not probably the right word, but identifying what band aid is probably going to nudge this person forwards, and then stacking potentially stacking these band-aids and um nudging the person out of the spiral um but i think we can all agree that the there's definitely a very large hormonal component um to to depression and i think there's there's definitely a way out of it well said. Okay, we will call it there. Thank you so much to the people that called. I mean, this show does not exist if people do not call in. So I really sincerely appreciate it. And I, we didn't get to take the last caller. So please call in uh, next time. Um, and guys, sincerely, thank you guys so much for calling. And thank you, Jay. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Harrison, for joining me today. Always uh, fun, as always. And then tomorrow on uh, my my channel on YouTube, uh, Ray Pete and Georgie Dinkov will be back on. Okay, so Jay, where where can we find more of your work uh, right now, Jay? Yep, my website is jfeldmanwellness.com and the podcast that Mike and I do is called the Energy Balance Podcast. And Mike, right, right over to you. Uh, my website is mikefavenp.com and then I do a podcast with Jay, as Jay mentioned, the Energy Balance Podcast. And then I also do a podcast with Hans Amato, and that is the Men Elite Podcast. And Harrison? Um, you can send me a DM on, you can slip into my DMs on Instagram. Harrison H. Um, and you can find me on the Generative Energy Helpline. And I'm turned 30 uh two weeks ago that's amazing that's question. <laughs> okay guys ago. thank you so much thank you everybody watching thank you future watchers and, and sincere appreciation for the people that called thank you guys so much have a safe week uh friday and we'll see you tomorrow with ray p and georgie take care everybody peace out